Hi friend, if you love the information you hear in the podcast, then you will love the free mini series of videos that I've put together just for you. It's all about the biblical blueprint for health and teaches you exact principles I've taught to thousands of Christian women that result in weight loss, better sleep, increased energy, clearer skin, and sharper brains. You can go to thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries to grab this free set of short, powerful teachings that will show you how to create better health God's way. It's at thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries. Go check it out now. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? We have a wonderful guest, a fellow NTP who is all about real food and all about Jesus. And I had the good fortune of meeting her when I was at the God's Good Food event at Polyface Farm. She was one of the speakers. And as soon as I could get to her after she gave her first presentation, I said, will you please come on the podcast and give that exact talk you just gave? (laughs) And she said, absolutely. I enjoyed it so much, and I like I wanted to fist pump while she was talking. It was just really good. I know you're going to enjoy it and find this so interesting. So welcome, Kat Owens, to the Christian Health Club podcast. Thanks so much, Chelsea. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Why don't you start by just telling us about you and what led you to become an FNTP? All right. Yeah. So I'm a a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, which is a certification through the Nutritional Therapy Association. And like a lot of people in this space, I came here originally through my own experience. So for me, it was that when I got out of college, I started having some issues with low blood sugar. I'd always had some skin issues. So nothing major. But when I started going to conventional doctors trying to get answers for these things, I just was able to see really quickly that they didn't necessarily have the tools or the approach for these chronic rather than acute conditions. And I also saw that a lot of that approach just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me as a Christian because they really seemed to, that conventional medical approach really seemed to approach health with the mindset that our bodies are fundamentally broken and it doesn't look to really anything in God's creation as a first line of defense or as a first type of solution to any of those things. So that really got me doing my own research and diving into all kinds of books and blogs and started attending different conferences, got my certification in 2019 with the Nutritional Therapy Association and been doing different uh, small group classes, one-on-one counseling, but what I really, really love doing is talking to Christians because there is so much in God's word that can inform us about food and about nutrition. And as Christians, we know that food and nutrition is not this totally secular topic. It's not completely separated from everything spiritual, but also we are eating every day. We're making decisions about food every day. So why not look to God's word to try to do that as efficiently as possible? Because most people are in some way or another trying to keep themselves and their families healthy. And I've just found so much in that approach that has been able to help me and that I really love getting to talk about with other people. I am with you and all of that. And yeah, you're so right. Most of us come to this holistic health space because of our own issues that we find no relief from in the conventional medical world. I was the exact same way with my skin condition, my digestive issues, and finally with 
unexplained with my air quotes over here, unexplained infertility that once I, you know, changed things, I was pregnant within like two months. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's quite a, quite a bit you can do. Of course I, you know, overcame my digestive issues and, uh, my skin condition. I manage completely by the way that I eat and lifestyle. And so there's just so much hope there. And I love when I, find a like-minded practitioner like you because um we just need to make these connections for people and as christians like we we always say we need the team healthy we got to keep the team healthy we have a lot of work to do in this world and so i'm so um so thrilled that you're doing this work as well let's uh let's start with um well we'll just kind of start with you know what you spoke about at polyface and i love the way you started your presentation i was captivated from the beginning um the way you were explaining the background and the history of the bias against meat so why don't we start there today obviously we're talking about a biblical perspective on meat and so um let's just kind of start from the place where things really went wrong <laughs> yeah yeah, so we're told today meat is the problem with everything from heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, right? We're hearing these messages all the time. And today it's very common in our culture to accept this idea that meat is problematic for our health. It can be problematic for climate change, animal welfare issues, all kinds of things. And that is very accepted. A vegetarian diet is very accepted as a healthy way of eating. Even our government dietary guidelines in the U.S. and a lot of other countries advocate this kind of way of eating. And we would be led to believe that all of that is originally purely scientific. But what a lot of people don't realize is that originally a lot of these ideas were actually religious. So what happened was that in the mid-1800s, this new religion sprang up out of the Great Awakening where a group of people went to the Old Testament, did this series of very complex interpretations of Old Testament prophecy and determined that Jesus was going to return to earth in 1844. So they waited around for his return. When he didn't return, a lot of people left that movement. A few stuck around, regrouped, and developed some new beliefs, such as investigative judgment, which is the belief that what really happened in 1844 was that Jesus ascended into this higher place of heaven, started a process of investigating believers to determine who was a true believer. Uh, they developed this belief called Adventism, which is that the Sabbath has to be worshipped on Saturday, not worshiping on Saturdays, a mark of the beast. And then they also prescribe equal importance to the body, mind, and, and soul. So this is the religion we now know is Seventh-day Adventism. But because of this equal importance they place on the mind, body, and soul, they also have a really heavy focus and, and have from the very start on what they call health reform. Basically, healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, and have been evangelizing this message ever since they first formed these beliefs. So basically what they believe about health reform is that the vegetarian diet is the ideal human diet. For one thing, because that's the diet we see in the Garden of Eden. And there was no death in the garden, right? So no one, there were no animals being killed. No one was eating meat. Uh, but they also believed that foods like meat, what they called other fine foods like coffee, alcohol, they believed that these foods would lead someone into sexual sin. So they would even preach about how it was basically impossible to live this moral, chaste life if you were eating meat and these other fine foods. A lot of their religion is based on the teachings of this lady, Ellen White, who they consider their prophetess. And she had what she called visions from God, where a lot of these beliefs originally came from. So, for example, the belief that meat causes cancer, a very origin of that belief is that that was one of Ellen White's visions. So, the Seventh-day Adventist Church started building what were called sanitariums, basically hospitals where they would educate people about these messages, treat patients, experiment with inventing new foods. 
And it was at these sanitariums where they invented what are now a lot of staples of our modern Western diet. So they were the first to invent any kind of meat alternative, any kind of fake meat. They invented the breakfast cereals at these sanitariums. And the original intention of the breakfast cereal is that it would replace the standard American breakfast of bacon and eggs with what was supposed to be a bland uh, grain product, a bland whole grain product. And, you know, you go to the grocery store now, there's an entire aisle for breakfast cereals. We can see they've been pretty successful in this. Now, our cereals today obviously have a lot more sugar and other things to make them more palatable. But uh, by and large, people are eating a grain-based breakfast like they originally intended. The Seventh-day Adventists originally invented nut butters, like peanut butter, but the original intention with that is that it was a replacement for real butter. They uh, can largely be credited with bringing the soy industry to America. Up until this point, soy had mostly been used in traditional Asian foods in a fermented form, like soy sauce or tempa. Uh, but they were some of the first to take soy use it in large quantities for things like fake meats and meat replacements. And then, of course, we see now that soy is an additive and used as all kinds of different ingredients in all kinds of different foods. So if, we, if you walk into the grocery store now, a lot of the food brands that you see were originally started or are still owned or affiliated somehow with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So this includes... Kellogg's, Post, Kashi, you know, that makes up the vast majority of our breakfast cereals. Morningstar Farms, which makes a lot of fake meats like uh, plant-based bacon and breakfast sausages. Uh, a large company called McKee Foods, which owns Little Debbie, Heartland Brands, Sunbelt Bakery, and Fieldstone Bakery. Loma Linda Foods, Earthstone, Worthington. These are all foods you would recognize in your grocery store. Uh, this isn't just in the U.S., though. They also own a lot of food companies in South America, Asia, Australia, even some foods that you would recognize as really classically Australian foods like wheat bix and Marmite. These were foods that were invented by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, really all for this purpose of replacing meat-based foods in the diet with grain-based foods. And even though a lot of these foods have a lot more sugar, and are a lot more palatable than what was originally intended by the Seventh-day Adventist. Overall, they're still achieving this purpose of getting animal foods out of the diet, getting more grains in. So once the Seventh-day Adventist church had the capability, and once they had been able to make these ideas more mainstream about vegetarianism, they were able to start funding a lot of the science that they needed then to support these beliefs. And even now, if we look at a lot of the scientific research uh, behind vegetarian diets implicating meat with health problems, we can trace a lot of that back to the Seventh-day Adventist Church's influence. They've overall just had a massive influence on healthcare in institutions, education, food industries, even publishing. I'll just read this off. As of 2017, the Seventh-day Adventist Church managed 171 hospitals, 101 colleges and universities, 753 secondary schools, 329 clinics and dispensaries, 133 nursing homes and retirement centers, 21 orphanages, 24 food industries, over 60 publishing houses, over 400 TV stations, over 200 radio stations, all of which ultimately accounts for over 8,500 educational institutions, 2 million students, and 17 million outpatient visits a year. Along with that, they have been, from the very start, in positions of significant influence over U.S. dietary guidelines and remain in those positions today in the U.S. and also in a lot of the rest of the world. Overall, it's just really hard to underestimate how big of an impact their church and these beliefs that originally came from their prophetess, these beliefs about the Garden of Eden— how big of an influence that those beliefs have had on our food today, our beliefs about food today, and even the dietary guidelines that we get from our government. That, 
I mean, I know everybody is just like, what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, I had, I'd read over the years about that connection with, um, Kellogg and Kellogg's and, you know, the grain cereal and really creating that to suppress sexual desire and, and just repress sexual function. And, you know, and then you think today of all the people who, of all the infertility, of everybody that suffers with hormonal issues, um, and, I, you know, they, they're succeeding. They've done a pretty good job um, with, you know, suppressing the, the function, I guess. Um, but it's just, I had no idea of the reach until you explained that. And it's, it's really unbelievable to think about. Yeah, it really is. And there really is something there to that. You know, if we see how much these animal-based nutrients and even cholesterol are important for our hormones, there really is something to that. But I just don't think people realize that at all when they go buy a Kellogg's cornflakes for breakfast instead of eating eggs. Yeah, and then it all stems back to this prophetess. I mean, you know, I think that's going to shock a lot of um, a lot of Christians here as they hear that. Um, and so, well, that explains a lot, you know, um, and crazy to think how so much of the science and the research stemmed from there. And that is what we hear so much today and really um, lends to this plant-based narrative. That is just, it's really crazy. Um, I do think people, you know, even maybe without just knowing that or thinking that I know I have come across a lot of people over the years who just really believe that because we started in the garden of Eden, um, you know, that God intended us to have a vegan or vegetarian diet. And I, I understand that it seems like it would be, you know, like, well, you know, it seems like that that's how we started. And that's maybe what, you know, how we should eat. But, um, but he also gave us meat. (laughs) So I don't know what, and I love to have somebody to pick their brain about all this information because, um, I just like to hear other people's, you know, thoughts about it as well. Professionals kind of in, in what we do here and just pick your brain. I mean, what are your thoughts about that when, you know, knowing that we started, um, in the garden of Eden, you know, did you ever think that, or do you find that a lot of people, feel that way, the people that you know and work with. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't even just see this idea with the Seventh-day Adventists. We have, you know, the Hallelujah diet that advocates really the same thing, eating this vegetarian diet, because that's what they did in the Garden of Eden. And I definitely see that with Christians, even if it's not specifically them going back to Genesis and thinking this through, at least just accepting what the world is telling them about it. But the reason I really like talking about all this with the Seventh-day Adventists is to point out that these beliefs really don't actually align with what we see in the Bible, if we really think it through, if we really question it. So, you know, the Garden of Eden, of course, we weren't eating meat. It was, there was no death. But what we need to understand is that things were so fundamentally different at that time in the world about humans, about animals, about plants. My daughter has this illustrated Bible book we like to read her, and the first page is the story of the Garden of Eden, and you know, it's got this cute picture with Adam and Eve and these happy animals and fruit trees, and one of the animals in that picture is this leopard, and you know, it looks like a happy leopard in the picture but it still is obviously a leopard right it has claws and teeth and spots and everything but the reality is that everything about how god made that animal is built around that animal being a hunter being able to kill and eat other animals right everything from it's the spots that allow it to camouflage its length of its legs how its eyes are placed on its face its teeth its digestive system everything about that animal so the reality is that it's easy to you know look at these cute pictures but the world at that time would not have had a leopard that looked like a leopard we know of it today and that's just one example we know that there's 
lots of animals that are carnivores or omnivores and have to eat meat to survive, right? And the, we know that so much of how God made their bodies is built around being able to hunt, being able to digest meat. What a lot of people don't realize is that one of those creatures is humans as well. There are nutrients that we absolutely have to get from animal-based sources to be able to survive long-term and definitely to thrive. And even a lot of how our body is built is built around being able to digest meat. If you look at our stomach acidity, if you look about look at the length of our intestines, and there's some misconceptions about this. Some people will say, "Oh, we have the teeth of herbivores," but um, you know, God also made us to have dominion and to be able to hunt and use tools and cook our meat. And if you look at our digestive system, though, it's very clear that we have the stomach acidity and the colons for digesting meat, not necessarily carrion, but cooked meat. For sure. So what we have to be able to recognize is that things in the Garden of Eden were so fundamentally different about human bodies, about animals, probably plants as well, that it's unrealistic to try to go and replicate that for us today. And there's also just nothing in the Bible that tells us that we are supposed to be going back and replicating the Garden of Eden. I think we can learn a lot more from going and looking at what's in the rest of the Bible about this topic. Agreed. Well, let's let's talk about what's in the rest of the Bible about this topic. So we look to Genesis 9-3 as, you know, the verse that we kind of feel like we get the green light <laughs> to eat meat. Um which is after the flood. And so um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's not kind of the official green light until then? Is that even accurate? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so it's debated, you know, when people began to eat meat. We know, for example, that Abel raised sheep before the flood. We don't know if that was for the milk, for the wool. But we also have to understand that the flood was also something that would have really fundamentally changed the way the world looked. Uh, I think it's very hard for us to, we definitely don't know what that looked like, but I think it's hard to even imagine just how different things would have been in that time. And, you know, I think there were some spiritual sacrificial elements to that as well. We just don't know how different things were before then, but but we do see, obviously, that meat was specifically given to humans at that time. And I just think we should be very, very careful about rejecting something that God has specifically given to us, buying into these beliefs that there's something fundamentally bad and unnecessary about it. And we definitely see after this time that there's a lot of other verses that talk favorably about meat, about animal fat. We know that the Passover regulations in Numbers 9 specifically commanded eating the lamb. You would not have been able to follow the Passover regulations without eating lamb. So this really was the way that the world was at that time, and we just don't see anything to tell us that that has changed since then. Right. I think um, some people forget that. Get, forget that part. And, you know, God was very specific um, about the kinds of, uh, meat, um, and animal foods that, you know, he laid out a pretty clear plan of what to eat. Um, and so, you know, I've kind of talked about that here, but share, share that and how that fits in here. Yeah. So I think the old Testament dietary laws are so fascinating and I never teach that we are still held to these laws morally we have freedom with all foods. I think the New Testament makes that very clear. But there's still a lot of important things we can learn when we look back to the dietary laws in the Old Testament, which is where God told his people what kind of animals they were supposed to be eating. And even right when Noah got off the ark after the flood, we see that the animals that were later then clarified as clean animals, these were the ones that there were more of them to be used as sacrifices, to be used as food. So even from the very start of being given meat specifically for food, it was really focused on these animals that were considered the clean animals. And 
Exodus 15, as well as some other verses in the Bible, point out that these dietary laws, these were not just random rules that were given to God's people to test them or to show them that they couldn't follow God's law. Of course, there were purposes along those lines as well, but these were also very practical laws that were specifically meant to keep God's people healthy, to make them a set-apart nation that would be a witness to the rest of the world around them that their God was the one true God. So these dietary laws that are outlined in Leviticus 11 start off in one of the, the, the very first commandment, the very first type of meat that is identified is, it says, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Now, this sounds kind of obscure, but what this is doing is it's identifying animals that now we call ruminants. Ruminants are animals that have this four part stomach. They actually have four separate stomachs. And what that does is it allows them to take grass which is a food that's not naturally very nutritious, definitely not for us, not for most animals, but they can take grass and turn it into something that is good nutrition for them and then also good, clean nutrition for us when we eat those animals. And these these specific regulations about having cloven hoofs, this also distinguishes ruminants from other grass-eating animals. And we can see some good reasons why other grass-eating animals would not have been considered clean, probably would not have been as good in nutrition. For example, a rabbit would be another animal that eats grass but is not a ruminant because it doesn't have a cloven hoof. It has like a paw, right? So a rabbit, because it's not a ruminant, it doesn't have four four separate stomachs and only has one a rabbit eats grass but then it needs to redigest it so what rabbits do is they will actually eat their own feces in order to digest that grass over and over again it's like they have to reuse their one stomach since they don't have four like a cow a ruminant does and so you can see how that would make meat that it would not be considered clean maybe not as nutritious it's also really interesting to, to think that an animal like a rabbit is very, very low in fat. Ruminants, on the other hand, what kind of animals are we talking about here? A ruminant is going to be something like a cow, elk, deer, sheep, goats. These are all considered ruminants. And what's really, really interesting to understand about ruminants, not only are they usually higher in fat, but... All ruminants have what we would consider red meat. And depending on how you classify it, you could also say that all red meat comes from ruminants. For the most part, all red meat comes from ruminants. So when we see that the very first dietary law specifically told God's people, these are the animals you are to eat. These are the clean animals. It's just very hard to believe that all these modern accusations against red meat, you know, that they are high in fat, they're high in saturated fat, all these things we hear about red meat, it's very hard to believe that that's really true and that that's really that problematic for our health when that is the type of animal that was specifically given to God's people to eat and told that they were it was clean and it was nutritious for them. Exactly. I think it, it does. These modern, this modern day war against red meat does not at all jive with what the Bible says. And I, I just think that I don't know if Christians just maybe they don't know. I mean, you know, I didn't know until I knew, you know, and was in my Bible. And you know, it, but when you understand this, it just makes so much sense. And you're like. Of course, you know, of course, it's supposed to be part of the diet. When you were talking about how rabbits are, um, you know, wouldn't be considered um, under that kind of umbrella of the ruminant, um, it made me think of rabbit starvation. And we hear about this Mm -hmm. sometimes, which is um, kind of a, a term people use when we talk about overeating protein, which, you know, modern times is hard to do. But if you only ate rabbit, um, you would, 
you could die of malnutrition because there is a deficiency in fat and carbohydrates. It's too lean of a meat. And, um, and we, so we need that fat in, in the meat to be healthy. And I mean, if you just lived off rabbit, you would, you would die of starvation. It's just, it's not enough nutrition and nutrients for us to live. And and that's really gross about what you said, how it eats its own poop. (laughs) I did not, I did not realize that. Um, Let's talk about some of the other meats, you know, that, you know, we think of chicken and pork, the other white meat. And, you know, I've heard, um, um, Diana, um, oh my gosh, why is her name, uh, you know, the NTP that's so big on the meat. Why can't I think of her name right now? Diana Rogers, Diana Rogers, um, at sustainable dish. And she's the author of, um, the sacred cow, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a great book on this, but, you know, talking about how I, a lot of us or a lot of people are more drawn to chicken and pork because we, you know, we hear that it's better, but also she says, you know, like red meat is red and we think of, it makes us think of blood and it makes us think of, it, it makes us think of death more than, you know, maybe eating a, eating a white meat or a breast or something, chicken breast or turkey breast or, you know, pork tenderloin or something like that. But um, I don't know. What are your thoughts about? I know we're not beholden to uh, these, you know, Leviticus laws. But what are your thoughts about pork and shellfish and um, you know, chicken is uh, and chicken and and all of the other meats? Yeah, that is such an interesting way of thinking about that, and I think it's true. Most people, if they're trying to eat healthy, I see this all the time. They're trying to eat chicken. They're trying to eat fish. Maybe without even really real realizing why all that is. But we've been told for so long that these are the healthy meats. They're low in fat. And, you know, something I realized is that I didn't even, when I first started getting into this nutrition journey, I didn't realize a lot of the reasons I had the beliefs I did. I would be buying food, and when I'd really start to think about it, I would think, why do I actually believe this? Why do I actually believe chicken is better than red meat? And, you know, when we question that, we realize it doesn't, maybe it doesn't hold up. So, you know, chicken is considered clean according to the dietary laws. Pork, obviously, shellfish would not. The reason, what we see in a lot of the rest of the dietary laws is that these laws were meant to prohibit food, prohibit meat that would have been eating other animals, any kind of carnivore, but also bottom feeders, anything that was just eating waste. With pork, there's definitely some concerns with diseases. They're similar enough to humans that there are diseases that can easily be transferred from pigs to humans. You know, swine flu obviously is an example of that. And Today, I think the biggest takeaway from that is not necessarily that we should be trying to follow the dietary laws if we want to eat healthy. I think probably a better takeaway from that today is to understand that the food that our food eats matters. So we have an even bigger concern today, though, than the fact that pork or shellfish would have been eating waste or would have been a bottom feeder. I think the concern that we have today, which is much bigger, is that most of our livestock, the large majority of our livestock, and you know, you're a ranching family, you're very aware of this, is being fed these diets that are very unnatural. It's not the kind of diet that these animals were really made by God to eat. This is true for pork, chicken, beef, these animals are being fed diets largely of grains, um, which is not necessarily problematic. Some of these animals do actually do well on grains, but the problem is that they're not they're not natural. It's not the natural way these animals would have been eating grains. Um, but they also could be being fed a lot of waste products, and that can end up affecting us through the meat. The really neat thing is that ruminants like cows are actually such good processors of what they eat that you actually don't have to worry about this this as much with beef as you do with other types of meat. Um, Beef is not going to be 
as affected when a cow is eating an unnatural diet. Uh, but when a pig or a chicken is, it is really going to affect the nutrition, the composition of the fatty acids, and that is something that affects us. Uh, but I also tell people that this isn't a big enough concern that I would not eat meat just because you can't get the most ideal type of meat. It's not like a plant-based protein is going to be better just because it's not the highest quality meat you can get. I agree. I tell people the same thing in that, um, you know, ironically, red meat is the most forgiving (laughs) when it comes to this, which I just think is so beautiful when we think about how God recommended you know, these ruminant animals with this way that they process their food and kind of um, have a better way of cleaning it, I guess you might say. It's just more clean because it's just so thoroughly processed, um, whereas that's not happening with chicken and pork. And so, yeah, I tell my people, listen, if, you know, if budget is an issue, and let's be honest, I mean, it is for most of us, or even accessibility, um, you know, that I would prioritize um buying a higher quality chicken or pork and going more with conventional beef if I had to choose, you know, and this is coming from, you know, obviously my husband's a grass fed, you know, cattle rancher. So of course, you know, I think that's the better choice. But if you're at the grocery store and you only have so much money and you're picking your meat, then I mean, that's what I, I would tell people, would you do the same if they were had to make that choice? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If I, I don't worry about it a whole lot if conventional beef is what's available to me. We do have a half cow that we got from an entirely grass-fed local farm, and that's most of the meat that we eat. People are always surprised when I tell them, I actually don't eat a lot of chicken or fish. It's mostly beef. Uh, But if I go to the store, there's a certain cut I want, and our store only has conventional beef. I really don't worry about that a lot. I make it a much bigger priority to buy high-quality pork and chicken. Yeah, same. Um, same here. I mean, you know, I, I love beef and obviously we have, I have a lot of it, but sometimes you just want something different, you know, but, um, but yeah, I think that's really surprising for people to hear is that the red meat is the most forgiving when it comes to the quality. So to, um, you know, to keep that in mind when they're making their decisions at the grocery store, um, let's talk about just kind of going back to more of this, idea that maybe the Bible is, um, you know, representing the fact that it's better to maybe be a vegetarian. I mean, I think of like, I think the Daniel fast and that becoming very popular really coincided with this, you know, plant-based movement and people thinking that's better. And then also when we look at, you know, some of the, um, well, even in, you know, the Christian religion, but, um, different denominations, giving up meat, you know, we know that during Lent, it's, um, one thing that people do is maybe give up meat on Fridays. And we see and historically that people often, when they gave something up, it, it was giving up meat. Um, and it was giving up kind of like you said, these finer, the finer foods that maybe the seventh day Adventists were talking about, like no meat, no alcohol, um, no, um, animal products, like maybe cheese and, and, or dairy and such. So, what are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about how, like, maybe the Daniel fast has influenced and, and how that history of of people giving up meat as part of kind of a, a you know, a sacrifice um, during religious, you know, holidays and such? Well, I really enjoyed the talk that you gave at the God-Given Foods Conference because talk you were talking about fasting from a faith-based perspective, and that, I think, provided a lot of really good nuance on this topic. And yeah, I think the most common expression of that kind of thing we see today is this Daniel fast. Uh, you may be familiar with this, that, or a lot of Christians are probably familiar with this, this idea of giving up meat. There's other foods that they usually lump into this. The idea is basically to try to replicate the fast that Daniel and his friends followed in, the, in Daniel 1. And... I am not trying to comment here on people's uh, possible motivations for doing this, possible spiritual reasons for doing this, but there seems to be this misconception that this is also a healthy thing to do because 
well, Daniel and his friends gave up meat and they were strong and healthy. So it must be a healthy thing to do to just cut out meat. And there's a lot more nuance I think we need to understand about this. So first of all, really understanding what's going on in this story that we read in Daniel 1. So Daniel and his friends, they're these young Jewish captives taken to Babylon to serve in this Gentile king's court. And they're being given the king's fine foods to eat. And Daniel says, we don't want to eat these foods that the king is eating or from the king's table that we're being given probably for two reasons. First of all, very likely this was meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but also most certainly was not prepared according to the Jewish dietary laws, probably may not have been clean meats. And so in order to honor God, he said, we don't want to eat these foods the king is eating. So the steward who's over him says, well, if you're not eating these foods we're giving you, we don't think you're going to be strong and fit for service, and that's going to be on me. And he's worried about this, but God gives Daniel favor, is able to convince the steward to test them. Daniel says, test us, give us nothing but vegetables to eat for 10 days, and then see how we're doing. And so God gives him favor. The steward agrees. They do this only 10 days, so not even very long. Daniel and his friends are eating this diet of nothing but vegetables. And then after 10 days, it's seen that Daniel and his friends were stronger and says fatter in flesh. So obviously in a good way, they stayed strong and healthy eating this diet of nothing but vegetables. So the takeaway from that is not that Daniel was like the first person to ever figure out that a plant-based diet was a good diet. The point is that he was, him and his friends were trying to honor God. They had faith that God would honor them in return. And when he did, it was a witness to the people around them, these unbelieving people around them, that their God was the one true God. If we're to ask, what does the book of Daniel teach us about a plant-based diet? Probably the best thing would be to say, well, it takes a miracle of God to stay healthy on a plant-based diet. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, there's some really good nuance here because, you know, what you talked about is this is not the only kind of meat-free fast we see, especially in church history. There was all kinds of different times during Lent for other holidays, other occasions where people would avoid meat for certain periods of time. And there can be health benefits from that. You talked about the autophagy that happens when your body is basically having to recycle its own proteins because it's not getting protein from the diet. And that's super beneficial because your body is then going and eating up all these excess waste proteins that can be viruses, bacteria, loose skin. And then, you know, that process is going to stimulate the human growth hormone, which has a lot of health benefits. So that's one of the reasons we see all these health benefits with any kind of fast. But we could also be seeing those benefits with a meat-free fast as well because it's just cutting down on the protein. But I think that's so important for people to understand that, like what you're talking about, because the takeaway there is not, oh, the meat itself is the problem whenever we can avoid meat that's going to be healthy. The, The thing you need to understand is that it's the protein So you can't be going up and loading on plant-based proteins if that's what you're trying to do with a fast like that. But also that this is a cyclical thing. You know, the Bible talks about there's seasons for everything. And our health, our, our diet is supposed to be a cyclical thing. There's supposed to be times where we're feasting and times where we're fasting. I think eating a lot of animal-based protein is almost always a good thing, but there can be times where it's a really beneficial thing to cut down on that or even cut way down on that for a limited fast as well. But it's just so important that people are understanding the reason behind that and the nuance behind that and not just seeing, oh, this Daniel fast is a thing, and so therefore that must mean meat is bad and that's a healthy way to eat. Because unfortunately, that's the conclusion. That's where that ends for a lot of people. Exactly. I love what you said. Like Daniel discovered, oh, like this is the best, this is the great way to eat. And I, I think that's how people really look at it. Like, oh, you discovered something there and, and we should do it just like that. I, when 
uh, one of the first podcasts I ever did, I, I interviewed Cynthia Damascos, and um, she's an ortho- Orthodox Christian, and so we talked about Orthodox Christian fasting. And, you know, they fast every Wednesday and Friday from meat um, and alcohol and kind of some of those other things we talked about. But they're, you know, they are uh, permitted to eat, you know, grains and such. And, and she was telling me how people, you know, in, in this modern day, you know, they're like loading up on you know, pasta and, you know, all this, there's a lot of, a lot of things that fall under things that are not meat, you know, and what we would call garbage. And I think that a lot of (laughs) vegetarians or vegans, um, eat a lot of the, the processed and refined carbohydrates. And she said that she had to, you know, she has to counsel her clients, like, this is not healthy, you know? Um, and I think that it's, when I, I think of, this entire way that we eat and I think of the Bible and I think how, okay, we started in the garden of Eden Eden, and we ate, you know, produce or, you know, vegans or vegetarians or whatever. And then, you know, we are permitted meat for, for this time of our life. And then when Jesus comes back, it goes back to kind of that no death garden of Eden situation. And so I just, I feel like it is like a time such as this, right. For that reason that, in this time that we need this meat, we need meat to be healthy, to be strong for what we need. But I also feel like God could see how man was going to just utterly mess up plant food, (laughs) you know, (laughs) with pesticides and herbicides and all of these things. And I mean, I, I feel like there's so many, you know, mind, mind bombs in, in all of these, um, and these plant foods, you know, that people and, and grains and, you know, all, of course, all of this is um, real food the way God made it, like I like to say. But when it's covered in pesticides or glyphosate or it's genetically modified, I mean, that is that is not doing our body any favors. And so I almost feel like in a lot of cases, meat is the safer choice, you know, even maybe a a. a lesser quality meat I just feel like there's more buffer or or barrier there and especially as we were talking about the ruminant meats you know just ha- being more forgiving in that situation but I don't know I'm always you know thinking about this and try trying to figure out what God's plan like we don't know what it is but it's always <laughs> so fascinating for me to to just kind of mull it over and that's why I love having somebody like you on um just to kind of to kick it back and forth and talk about it and talk about, I mean, what, you know, what we, what we think, because I know when, you know, one thing I wanted to ask, you know, ask like, why, why you, why you want to ban shrimp and lobster? It's so good. (laughs) Like you said, you know, bottom feeders eating waste, but wow, there's such a great source of protein. And, um, you know, so there's, you know, all of those things. And I think you're right. It's like those, Old Testament dietary laws. No, we're not held to them. Held to them today, but I also think we don't want to turn our nose up at like God's gold star health advice. I feel like that is the gold star health advice, you know, right there, and that we don't want to um, ignore that. Um, but today's food is just—it's hard to navigate because we man has really compromised it, um, and I just. I feel like that's one reason I'm just such a champion of meat and I want to bring this to people's attention and same with you. I feel like it's, you feel the same is because, uh, you know, I fear people that are really stuck in this plant-based diet and, or, or just more, you can be plant-based and have a, le- you know, lesser quantity of meat. I think some people absolutely can be okay like that. It's just more like the vegan, um, super strict vegetarian people that I worry about their health. Um, I don't know what any comments to any of that rambling that I just did. Yeah, no, I would agree with all of that. Um, I, you know, I think it's easy as Christians and even for other people who just are thinking about these ethical concerns to think, well, you know, this death and blood, obviously much more associated with meat than with plants. And it's easy to think, well, it just seems cleaner. It seems more moral uh, to to avoid that. But you know, the reality of the world we live in today is that death is always required for life. Right now, we're living in between the Garden of Eden, between God's new heaven and new earth. That's the reality of the world we're living in. We see that reality in 
everything around us. We see this with the soil, the way that animals and plants have to decompose in order to keep that soil healthy and grow more plants, which then feed more animals. We see this reality uh, ultimately in Jesus' sacrifice, that he had to die on the cross in order for us to have eternal life with God. And obviously he rose, rose from the dead, but that death was an essential part of that. And I really think that if we try to shortcut that, if we try to say, we don't need, I don't want any death on my plate, and we try to shortcut that, all that's going to happen is we're just going to end up finding death one way or another, whether that's through the slow decline of our health, because yes, I have a lot of health concerns too about the vegetarians and vegans who just are not getting this good nutrition. And they, they probably see some health benefits at the start because usually those people are cutting out a lot of the other garbage, like you said, at the same time. But then long term, they're just not getting the nutrition protein they need. But we can also see that the the problems that come up with that when, you know, the reality is that there's no there's no way to eat that there is no death involved. You might not see a piece of meat on your plate if you are having a plant-based dinner of beans and rice, but the reality is that there are lots of small animals that die even just in the process of all of the crops in our agriculture system of plant-based foods. There's probably more small animals that are killed in that process. And if you want to if you want your diet to result in the least loss of life, probably the best thing you can do is actually to eat large animals, which is also, uh, interestingly enough, probably going to be ruminants like cows. Exactly. I know. I don't think people think of it that way. And, you know, just the monocropping, the death of the soil, the soil depletion, which makes the plants even less nutritious. And, um, yeah, I, it is definitely concerning. I think a lot of people too, you know, they are concerned about animal welfare. And I think that's absolutely warranted and, and legitimate. Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely. you know, the, the concentrated animal feeding, op- feeding operations, the CAFOs are, um, yeah, they are an abomination and they, they're not the best, um, environment for the animal to be raised in. I, I 100% agree with that. And that's why, you know, it is if best if you can to reach out to your local farmers and ranchers, you know, know how the animal was raised and, and treated and um, did it get to, you know, eat its natural diet? Did it get to be in the sunshine? Did it get to exercise its muscles? Did it get to move around? You know, all of those things are so important. And so I, I understand that um, that as well. But I think there are ways that you can be judicious and discerning about the the meat that you choose if um you know if that's your concern I think it's everyone's concern but you know if that's kind of your barrier then there's definitely options out there yeah definitely yeah um well that is um so great before we go do you have any kind of just final recommendations oh I know what I wanted to ask you um just before we go to kind of I don't know um some of these these modern things that you know what the science says that you know these claims that meat are meat is not good um kind of go through because you had included some of those in your talk as well um just the things that we hear that are are not really true about meat as far as like cholesterol and and things like that yeah yeah just so you know no one thinks that what we're talking about is not also supported in the science it really is we've we've had this science ever since about the mid-1900s trying to tell us saturated fat is bad therefore red meat is bad therefore meat is bad and you know a really great book on this topic if someone really wants to dive into this is the big big fat surprise by nina teicholz she's just gone so in depth in this topic there's no way you can read that book and have any doubt that the science that was bad science from the very start, it got it all wrong. There was so much bias and industry influence in all of that. Uh, but really what we see, if we really go look at the science now, is there are 
numerous studies, reviews of the literature, which are like, you know, looking at all the studies out there, showing that there's there's no cardio no cardiovascular health risk of elevated LDL, which it, originally that was the big implication with meat and saturated fat. But the science consistently shows us that there's no health risk of eating saturated fats, even even not just cardiovascular risk. There has never been an interventional study done that has ever been able to show a health benefit of removing meat from the diet alone, which is really what we need to draw that conclusion, and it's just never been shown. There's a lot of studies showing associations between vegetarianism and veganism and mental health issues, as well as obviously all kinds of nutrient deficiencies. Vegetarians have been shown to have lower sperm concentrations, and we mentioned earlier about the Seventh-day Adventists might have been onto something with uh, suppressing sex hormones and all of that. There's definitely some science to that. And then, you know, we can just look, too, at the nutrients that are found in animal foods and how much more abundant almost every nutrient is in animal foods. My approach is I really like to try to teach things that can always be backed up by science, by what we see in human history, and then also with God's Word. So... Yeah, I think everything we're talking about today is really obviously what we we believe, what we really see in God's word, but it's also what we see when we go look at the science and also human history. Humans have always been eating meat, especially ruminants and red meat, prioritizing these in their diets. And what we actually see if we go and look is at how diets have changed is that over the last hundred or so years, people have largely been following the conventional advice. People are eating less red meat. They're swapping it out for white meat. They're eating way less saturated fat. And yet all of these health conditions that we're told are caused by those foods are just skyrocketing. The heart disease, the cancer, the obesity, there's no correlation there. Yeah, I think they've pulled a big wool over... <laughs> big wool over our eyes and um it just it doesn't add up but um you know it's scary when you walk into your doctor and they're like you have high cholesterol and you need a statin and you have to stop eating red meat and you know we want to believe that that is we want to believe our doctors you know and it's hard to not but um I get that a lot like I mean can you show me studies that show that you know high cholesterol is is not an issue or you know, red meat's not a problem, and um, the science, the science is there. And you know, any I think, like I always hear, one thing that's frustrating about the science is that you can find science to support opposite be- beliefs and hypotheses, yeah. which is, Absolutely. you know, like kind of cancel each other out. So that's again why I think coming back to to God's word has always been my compass. Like, what makes sense here? You know, like what. Because I think that's what we have to do with all of this noise, uh, dietary noise, and this all the contradictions in the world is just we have to come back to God's word, use the brains, you know, the good brains He gave us, and and make, you know, make educated decisions and um, about what we're even eating, even though it's not what we see in social media, maybe not what we hear about at our doctor's offices, but um, just you know, following real food the way God made it, um, just keeping it simple. Um, so before we leave, I have to ask you the, um, the anchor questions, um, that I ask all my guests and, um, before, but before I do that, is there anything else that you want to wrap up with? Say anything that we didn't cover? Well, this was a great conversation about all the things I love to talk about, about meat. I just like to encourage people, big takeaways, enjoy your meat. Most people would benefit from eating more of it, even more red meat. And you know, we talk about food quality, but that's never something I want people to worry about because even if, like we talked about, even if you're just eating conventional meat, getting more of that is still going to be beneficial for most people's health. And overall, we really can just keep it simple and try to eat foods the way God created them. It, it actually doesn't have to be all that complicated. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so the anchor questions. Let's start with your anchor meal. What is your go-to healthy meal that you eat often? You know, right now I'm making I'm making a lot of fried rice actually. I've really enjoyed recently 
finding ways to prepare grains better. For a long time, I was not eating any grains and benefited a lot from that. And I, I certainly think there's a lot of health conditions that benefit from that or even from cutting down on carbs. Uh, but but I think a part of the freedom that I found in this studying nutrition from a biblical approach is that a lot of these foods we actually can enjoy if we're just preparing them properly or eating a good natural God-given form of it. And so it's been fun for me to learn how to properly prepare rice. And uh, I like fried rice because it's so easy to take any leftover meat I have. You can put that in the rice, bulk up the protein, the animal-based protein by putting scrambled eggs in it. Any kind of, we're picking stuff from our garden right now, so I'll just go out and whatever, bell peppers or anything I can find, throw that in there. Uh, that's kind of a fun, like, clear out the leftovers for me that I'm enjoying, and my husband really likes that, too. Yeah, I, I hear you about finding some freedom in the in the grains. I, you know, started, um, I don't know, last October, milling my own, you know, wheat and making bread, and it's just been, after being gluten-free for 10 years, and so it was such a switch, you know, and um, have had so many people uh, start doing the same thing. And and I get so many messages every day about how that's helped people. And it's just, you know, like it never jived with me. I mean, I just always had that cognitive dissonance, you know, like in the back of my brain, like that they, you know, Jesus is the bread of life and they eat bread and all those things. But again, it's, you know, I was like, it's quality. It's just, it's the difference of today. But when you, when you use good quality ingredients, when you prepare it properly, um, that's, the key you know that is the key so um I love a slab of meat and I love me a slab of bread (laughs) so so, I love that so good okay how about an anchor verse Mm. yeah you'll want to go back to a lot especially when I'm talking about nutrition is a second corinthians 418 it's this is the verse that says as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's a great reminder for me that food, our health, these things are passing away. And so for one thing, I don't have to be anxious about this. I want to remember the things that are eternal, uh, people's souls, God's word, but also that there are so many spiritual implications to food and spiritual things that I can learn from food. And I always want that to be my approach and my focus when I'm talking about these kind of topics. Yeah, I I love that. Yep, this is not this is not everything, you know, here. Um, so I think that's always good perspective to keep in mind is that, you know, one thing I always try to remind people is like, what I don't, even though this is all we talk about here is food and health and all these things, what I don't want it to do is take up so much brain space, occupy so much brain space that it's, you know, um, preventing you from um, just thinking about the Lord, thinking about your blessings, thinking about your purpose, and really thinking about how you're showing up and serving in that way. And so I think what you do and what I do is just really trying to equip people so that they can do that better in the body that they have, just so they feel well enough to do those things here in the world and just um and be connected to the lord through through our food make that connection because he is our great creator both of the food and of our body so it has been so great to have you and have this discussion truly i it's so it's like so fun for me to kind of geek out and like i said get to just talk back and forth about this kind of stuff with somebody so thank you for that and how can people find you and and you're taking clients correct and work with you and all that good stuff yeah yeah so fun for me too thank you so much and yes i uh my instagram is taste and see underscore biblical nutrition that's where i'm trying to share a lot of this information right now but also my website which is just taste and see biblical nutrition i've got information on there about one-on-one consults I do try to keep it really simple you can just go in there and book something if there's something someone wants to talk about one-on-one with and what I really really love doing is teaching classes for churches and church groups especially for women that's something I've been doing in the last year that I've just really loved and so I am trying right now to develop 
course materials that I can share because there are a lot of people who want to teach things like this for their churches, their church groups. And if I can share materials I've already put together, I want to be able to do that with people. Uh, but I'm also willing to travel if someone wants to host a class and host me and my family to come out and uh, teach something at your church. That's Teaching is really uh, my favorite thing to do, and I think the best way for me to share this information. That, yes, we need absolutely need more of that happening. Um, that is fantastic. So everybody um, follow Kat at Taste and See Biblical Nutrition. And, um, and again, thank you for being here. And I thank everybody for listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week, and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week. Thank you.